I invite you to turn with me this morning to the Paul's epistle to the Galatians, chapter 1. Actually, we'll be reading from chapter 1, verse 15, to chapter 2, verse 10. We have been looking at Reformation themes as they emerge from this portion of Scripture, Galatians chapters 1 and 2. We will be referring to chapter 1 and chapter 2 this morning. And then this afternoon we will conclude chapter 2, so we would have covered chapters 1 through 2. But beginning this morning at verse 15, Paul is defending his apostleship. And he writes, beginning in verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him Fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also for me, mine, to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, The very thing I was eager to do. We have identified a clause in verse 5 as the overarching theme of chapters 1 and 2, and perhaps the entire book, at least in my estimation, because there Paul declares his reaction to the Judaizers, the false teachers, he said this, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from that, we derive the theme retaining the gospel. How do we as Christians, particularly in these days of apostasy, these days of a perverted gospel, How do we retain, how do we preserve the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? 
We saw last week that we do so, first of all, by holding to the truth that there is but one and one gospel. Verses 1, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Secondly, we retain the gospel by coming to grips with the fact that diversion from the gospel is desertion of the Lord, chapter 1 and verse 6. And we closed on the note that we are retaining the gospel, we are going to retain the truth of the gospel by vigorously defending its integrity. And this morning, we are just going to consider one point, one point, and that is we retain the truth of the gospel by affirming the fact that it is apostolic. We retain the truth of the gospel by affirming its apostolicity. We could put it like that. Now that sounds a bit, we would say, abstract. But I want to develop that theme this morning. And you're going to see how important this theme is, particularly in these days in which we live. The gospel is apostolic. The gospel we know is first and foremost divine as such, it is termed the gospel of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, 15, verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 2, 8, and 9. The gospel is Christ-centered because it concerns his son, that is, God's son, Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. That is why it is often referred to as the gospel of Christ, as we see in Galatians chapter 1, verse 7. Romans chapter 15, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 12, and verse 12, among other references. So first and foremost, the gospel is Christ-centered, or some say Christocentric. The gospel is divine or theological, but the gospel is also apostolic, which is to say that the gospel is defined, is delineated by that body of truth regarding the saving work of God in Christ as preached and taught by the apostles of Christ. That is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 5 through 9, Paul, we see in that passage, grounds the authenticity of the gospel concerning the death and resurrection of Christ, not only in scripture, but in the witness of the apostles. Christ, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now here's a big question. Why is it important that we affirm that the gospel is apostolic? First of all, because this will help us understand why Paul, here in the book of Galatians, particularly chapters 1 and 2, is vigorously defending his apostleship, as in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says that he is an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. A close reading of chapters 1 and 2 suggests that the Judaizers, the Religious legalists from Jerusalem were challenging the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. They were suggesting that Paul is no real apostle. He is not at all legit. They were questioning his apostolic claim because of what he had been preaching to the Galatian Christians as regards how one comes into a right relationship with God. Paul had been preaching salvation by faith in Christ alone. The Judaizers were saying, no, no. Faith in Christ is good. It's all well and good to have faith in Christ. But unless one is circumcised according to the custom of Moses, one cannot be saved. We see that claim of theirs in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. How did Paul go about defending his apostleship and the gospel he preached? What were the arguments Paul presented 
to enforce, to underscore the reality that he was a legitimate apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Paul, you'll notice, argued in verse 11 of chapter 1 that the gospel he preached was not humanly invented. The gospel he preached was not humanly invented. He writes there in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. In effect, he was saying to the Galatian Christians that the gospel he proclaimed to them did not originate from human ideas, that it was not the product of human reflection, human creative reflection, that it was not the product of man's religious genius. It's not man's gospel. He firmly declares there in chapter 1, verse 11, the gospel he preached was not humanly invented. Second, in defending his apostleship, Paul argued that the gospel he preached was not humanly inherited. It was not a gospel that he derived from man. Here's what he says in the A part of verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I didn't go to school to learn this gospel, is what he's saying. Now I'll tell you this. Those of us, myself, um, we went to um, Battle College Seminary. We learned about the gospel. We learned to preach the gospel. Paul says, when it came to me, I went to no school to learn how to preach. I went to no school to learn what the gospel is all about. In fact, he says in verses 15 through 17, that upon his conversion and upon his call to the ministry, here's what he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Evidently, when he went to Arabia, he went there where he was with God, with Christ alone. Right after his conversion, of course, we know Paul, from Acts chapter 9, verse 17, had met with Ananias and was baptized by Ananias. In addition, he had spent several days with the apostles, with the disciples, that is, with other Christians, not necessarily the 12 apostles. The word disciple here is used in a loose way to refer to Christians. He had spent several days with the disciples, that is, with Christians, in Damascus. And there's no doubt but that he must have spoken to them, he must have dialogued with them concerning the gospel. It's important to note here what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that he did not talk to anyone about Christ. He's not saying that he did not communicate with anyone concerning the gospel. What Paul is in fact saying is this, that he did not learn about the gospel from anyone in terms of the ins and outs of the gospel, in terms of the depths of the gospel from anyone. He's affirming he was never trained by anyone, by any apostle, as to the content of the gospel he preached. In fact, here's what he says. He says in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1, that on going up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, he stayed with Peter 15 days, but that he did not see any of the other disciples except James. And you'll notice what he does in verse 20. He says, concerning this, listen, I'm not lying. <laughs> he puts his integrity on the line. He says, listen, I only went... And I only saw Peter when I went up to Jerusalem. I, I didn't see any of the other apostles except James. A third argument Paul adduces to, to highlight, to establish le, le, the legitimacy of his apostleship is this. Paul argues that the gospel he preached was not, or rather positively speaking, the gospel he preached was divinely imparted. 
It was not humanly invented. It was not humanly inherited. Rather, it was divinely imparted. Here's what he says. He affirmed that the gospel he preached, he received directly from Christ. Live and direct, as we would say. Here's what he says. The B part of verse 12. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, but he says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Listen, Paul had a rich religious heritage. Paul was trained We would say, to use our language today, he was trained in theology, he was trained in the Old Testament. He sat at the feet of the best professor of the day, the best rabbi of the day, Rabbi Gamaliel, as he says in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, and that he was taught according to the perfect manner of the law of his fathers. As a Jew, Paul would have grown up in a scripturally informed family, a family where the law was read, the Torah was read, scripture was read. Hence, he was, we would say, thoroughly educated in the Bible. But note here what he's saying in his epistle to the Galatians. With all of that training, with all of that exposure, Paul is clear that the gospel he preached was not something he had learned from another man. The gospel he preached had its origin in God. From beginning to end, his gospel, he's saying, is a divine revelation, a revelation of what? A revelation of the truth of Christ crucified, a revelation of the truth of Christ's death, a death not after the manner of a martyr, a death, my friends, not of a good man dying for a noble cause, but a death which functions as a substitutionary Redemptive sacrifice for sinners. Here's point in Galatians chapter 1 verse 3. Christ, he says, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. That was the gospel Paul preached. And Paul is saying, I'm a a legit apostle because, look, I wasn't taught it. I did not inherit it. It was not humanly invented. It was, in fact, divinely imparted. I received it as a revelation. Let me just make a little application here to say this. That even as Paul received the gospel by revelation, so our appreciation and reception of the gospel has to come by divine illumination. Notice what I said. I did not use the word revelation in the second instance because you and I cannot, cannot get revelation today. Revelation is a done deal. Revelation was confined to the apostles. However, you and I, what we receive from God is illumination, the illumination of our minds, God shedding light on the text of Scripture so that we might be able to grasp and understand the things that God has freely given to us in the Word of God. If a person is to be saved, that person has to be divinely illuminated. The Spirit of God must work in the heart and life of that individual, opening their eyes to the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and following. Now, to further support his claim that the gospel he preached was not learned from man, here's what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because, here it comes once again, I went up because of a revelation. I didn't go up, he's saying, because I was summoned there by the other apostles to give an account to them. I went up because of a revelation. In other words, God talked to me. God spoke to me. He says, I went up, verse 2, because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, 
before those who seem to be influential. He's talking about Peter, James, and John. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order, here's what he says as to why he went before them, in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Now his statement here suggests that even when he visited, even when he went to Jerusalem, his purpose in going to Jerusalem was not to get the approval of the other apostles concerning what he had been preaching for all of those years. His purpose was not to get their approval, was not to get their permission as to the content of the gospel he had been preaching. According to verse 2, he simply wanted to ensure, he says, that he was not running or had run in vain. He says, let me just go up there. And you see, because these Judaizers, they are pestering me. They are saying I'm not a real apostle. They are undermining the gospel I preach. They are coming, they're messing up the church that I'd established. He says, let me just go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to present the gospel to them. I'm going to go privately. Just to make sure that I'm not running or I'd run in vain. What is Paul saying there? What Paul is suggesting there is this, that if the apostles in Jerusalem, that is to say the 11 apostles in Jerusalem, were to say something other than what he had been preaching, then that would undercut all his gospel labors in which he had been preaching salvation apart from adherence to the Mosaic law, particularly as regards circumcision. Now, look at what Paul does when he goes up to Jerusalem. He goes along with Barnabas, but notice what he says. I took with me Titus. Question, why did he take Titus with him? Because, you see, Titus was not a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. Titus was Greek. And being a Gentile, he was not circumcised. Even though he was saved, he had embraced faith alone in Christ. Paul took Titus along with him. Why did he take Titus along with him? One could say this, as some commentators suggest, he took him as a test case. He took him as a test case. The question is, would the apostles in Jerusalem insist that Titus be circumcised? Because, listen, if at all the apostles were to say, look, Paul, you, you, know, you should circumcise him because he's not Jewish. Yes, he has come to faith in Christ, but you need to circumcise him. Then that would what? Undercut, it would mess up all that Paul had been doing. The, the, the Judaizers would say, see, look. There we have it. He's a false apostle. He's not in line with the Jerusalem apostles. They would then say he, after all, was the one preaching a false heretical gospel. Well, what became of this meeting? We're talking this morning about Paul defending his apostleship. And why is it important that Paul affirms his apostleship? Why is it important we affirm the apostolicity of the gospel? Well, what became of this meeting with Paul and the other apostles? Look at verse 3. Paul says there, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. <laughs> and I can imagine Paul saying right away, wow, praise God, hallelujah. Regarding the rest of the meeting, here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says went down in the rest of that meeting with the Jerusalem apostles. He says there in verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, what Paul is saying here, listen, they did not modify in any way what I was preaching. They did not say, well, it would be a wise thing if you would take Titus and circumcise him. He says, no, no, no. They added nothing to my gospel. 
On the contrary, verse 7, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, verse 8, he says this parenthetically, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Victory. Victory. Paul is vindicated. Paul is a legit apostle. Indeed, one is saved simply by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from rituals, apart from the works of the law. Now, the thing that's most striking from all that Paul records is that even though he was a bona fide apostle, even though he was a legitimate apostle in his own right, divinely called, Paul, watch this, Paul did not act in an arrogant manner independently of the other apostles in Jerusalem. Did you notice that? He's a legitimate apostle. He's a true apostle called of Jesus Christ. He had been preaching for many years. The Judaizers came along, were undermining him, saying, listen, you Paul, you're preaching a false gospel. Paul, notice what Paul does. Even though he knew in himself, he knew that he was called by God, he knew he had the gospel right, he did not dissociate himself from the rest of the apostles. He didn't operate as some kind of maverick, doing his own thing, accountable to no one. He was willing, notice, to travel to Jerusalem. He was willing to subject his teaching to the apostles. Now, let's make some application here. What's the problem in our time? You notice, my friends, the prevalence, the proliferation of televangelism, of people coming up, and they are starting churches, they are starting ministries, and one of the big questions often is, to whom are they accountable? To whom do they answer? Some years ago, we know that there was a prominent televangelist, or rather radio evangelist, who was going about. This man was highly influential. This man had cash. And he basically was doing his own thing. He left his church, and we don't know, there were, apparently was some disagreement. But what happened, this man went on a wild rampage with a crazy, can I say this, a crazy gospel. That's the kind of thing we get. You see, heresies often arise in the church because of individuals who consider themselves as being so spiritual as they claim. They're personally heard from the Lord. That's what we have in certain circles today. They have gotten a word from the Lord, a word of knowledge, a word of prophecy. And because they have heard from God, because God has spoken to them, there's no need to listen to any man. There's no need to be accountable to anyone. And that's how we get heresies. They belong to no local church. They're accountable to no one they say other than God. Paul subjected himself, even though he was a leader in the church in his own right. He was an apostle. He was going about establishing churches. Yet Paul even though he was independent of them, did not dissociate himself from them. As we're saying, that's why we have today all kinds of distortions of the gospel, all kinds of appendages, all kinds of foreign notions and ideologies being presented as the gospel of Christ. Why? Because we have people just going about doing their own thing. In fact, some of them call themselves apostles. 
And the point Paul is making, beloved, from our text is that part of what it means to retain the truth of the gospel, part of what is involved in championing the truth of the gospel, part of what it means in defending the integrity of the gospel is a recognition and affirmation of its being apostolic. That is to say that the gospel is rooted in the traditions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that any teaching that purports to be the gospel must fall in line with the traditions, the teachings of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is specifically, watch this, specifically the men Christ handpicked to bear witness of his life, more so of his Resurrection, these men were equipped with the task of expounding and also, we would say, formulating, developing the gospel. Remember, Jesus did not say everything about the gospel when he was here on earth. What did he say to his apostles, his disciples? He says, but when he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will reveal all things to you. And Paul, we see, my friends, Paul, even in his Ephesian epistle, is talking about the revelation, the mystery that was revealed to him, which was not revealed in ages. Paul is unfolding. Paul is expounding the ins and outs, the intricacies of the gospel. Now, to say that the gospel is apostolic implies at least three things. We don't want to leave this morning on the, on the clouds in an abstract way. So what is Pastor Harris is saying? What does he mean? And he has been talking about the gospel being apostolic. Why is it important? And what's the whole implication of the gospel being apostolic? Number one is this. There's no one today, no one, absolutely no one, who qualifies as an apostle so as to legitimately claim any kind of revelation from God. The fact is that the days of the divinely authorized and commissioned apostles of Christ have long passed. The apostle John was the last one. In fact, there were at least three criteria of an apostle. And one of the criteria of a bona fide apostle, according to the word of God, was that he had, he had to have been selected and commissioned by Christ. He had to have been personally selected and commissioned by Christ. You can write this scripture down. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. We read, and when the day came, he, that is Jesus, called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Do you notice anything significant about that verse? He called to him his disciples. And the thing to note in this verse is that whereas all followers of Christ are disciples, not all disciples are apostles. Jesus, when he was around here on earth, he had not just 12 disciples, he had countless disciples. Out of the countless disciples, he chose 12 to be with him, to go around with him, to train them. And these 12 that he chose from among the vast pool of disciples, he called them apostles. A second criterion of an apostle was that he had to have seen the risen Christ. That was a must. He had to have seen the risen Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 1. You remember the first business meeting the church had? Well, it was a prayer meeting. But in that meeting, what was Peter's concern? It's necessary for us to choose one from among us who was with the Lord Jesus, who was a witness to his resurrection. You remember? Acts chapter 1, verse 21, verse 21 and 22. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul, in defending his apostleship before the Corinthian church, he says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not, what, seen the Lord Jesus? 
Somebody says, where did Paul see Jesus? <laughs> he saw him on the road to Damascus. And what happened when he saw him? He was personally commissioned by Christ to go preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. He was seen of Peter. He was seen of James. He was seen, last of all, by me as one born out of due time. An apostle had to have seen the Lord Jesus. An apostle had to have been personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus, personally selected, personally appointed as an apostle. Now, here is a third criterion. Third qualification of an apostle was the authentication of their office by signs, by signs, by wonders. Come on, Peter did signs. Peter was an apostle, did signs and wonders. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, of such great salvation, which was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, that is the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according his will. Indeed, this was why Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 19, could speak of how his ministry was attended by what he described as, quote-unquote, by the power of signs and wonders. Paul says, listen, the signs of an apostle are truly in me by signs and wonders. That is why he could say to the Corinthians regarding his ministry among them, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. There are no apostles today in that sense. No one can sanely truthfully say in the literal sense of the term that they have seen the risen Christ. They can't. The term should not be used. The term must not be used because when that term is used, it undercuts the integrity and finality and sufficiency of the gospel. Why? Because there's no need for apostles. Apostles presuppose continuing revelation which we don't have today. Everything that God has to say is right here in his word. The apostolicity of the gospel. Second, to say that the gospel is apostolic addresses the issue of authority. It addresses the issue of authority. It answers definitively the question, who or what determines the authentic gospel? And let me say here that negatively speaking, who determines the authentic gospel? It is not some pastor or bishop. It is not some pastor or bishop that defines and determines what is the authentic gospel. It is not the Pope. Now, I'm going to soften a little. Um... And I don't mean to be rude. I don't mean to be offensive. But the Pope is not an apostle. Authority is not vested in the Pope when it comes to defining and delineating the gospel. It's not. Once again, it's precisely the teaching of the apostles of Christ as recorded in Scripture. You see, this was one of the very issues. We're talking about Reformation today. What was one of the fighting points of the Reformation? What was it that Luther and Calvin and others were championing when it came to the Reformation? It was this question of authority. Where does authority for the gospel come from? Where does authority come from? In the church. The reformers rightly rejected the authority of the Pope. Rome said, or, and continues to say, that authority is vested in the Pope and his cardinals. It's invested in church traditions. The Reformation, let me say even more precisely, the word of God says, no, the authority lies here. It lies in the apostolic tradition. So as we close, let me say here that biblical Christianity derives its authority not from a theological seminary. We have in seminaries today people making pronouncements which, is, which are being passed as dogma. Why? Because they have long titles behind their name. Let me say this. 
some of their teaching, much of their teaching, will send people right to hell. We must not be mesmerized. We must not be taken aback by degrees, theological degrees. Biblical Christianity does not derive its authority from some theological seminary or from some ecclesiastical hierarchy. It finds its authority not in church traditions, but in the traditions of the original apostles of Christ. One Bible commentator clearly spells out for us the truth, the issue. He says this, our lives are to be subject to Jesus Christ, speaking through his apostles. He says, although Paul is a believer in Christ as we are, we are not apostles as he is. Proper authority is vested not in human consensus, but in apostolic teaching. The church is built, and here comes the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's what Paul says. This writer says, this, he asks the question, what is the reason for this? It is because salvation history has entered its definitive and final stage in Jesus Christ. All our thinking henceforth must be referred back to this normative beginning, which will not be succeeded or surpassed. The teachings of Christ and the apostles are therefore completely normative for the faith of all latter Christians. All human opinion and tradition are to be measured and subordinated to this standard. Paul is clear on that. That's, um, he, and this writer continues. He says, the apostles of our Lord Jesus were unique and their words was, what their word was to be binding. Of them, Jesus said this, he who receives anyone whom I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. John 13, verse 20. We are to receive Paul's word as Christ's own. We are not to claim an authority on a level with that of Paul, nor exalt our opinions over his teaching. Here is why we are strong on this. Because one of the arguments you will hear today, as people want to push their own agenda and they go to the Bible, they say, well, that was what Paul says. But what does Jesus say? Listen, what Jesus says is what Paul says. Paul's words, the words of the apostles, and can I say this? I don't blush to say this. It is the biblical truth. Their words, once they are teaching, they are infallible. Infallibility is not a function of the Pope. Infallibility is a function of the apostles. Why? Because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They, they never made mistake in what they were writing. When Paul says... I give my opinion. This is not Christ speaking. This is me. It doesn't minimize the fact that what Paul is saying is the word of God. By the way, what Paul really means there when he talks that, that for example, 1 Corinthians 7, what Paul is really saying is this, that when Jesus was on earth, he never covered all of those things. For example, you know, issues, some, some aspects of the discussion of marriage, divorce, separation. He says, I'm giving my opinion. And here's, you know, I think I, I have the spirit of God. However, what he says must be taken as dogma, as authoritative. Why? Because it's the word of God. Third, to say that the gospel is apostolic ultimately implies that the gospel is objectively verifiable. If we say that authorities invested in the apostles, if we say that the apostles were commissioned by Christ to be bearers of the gospel, to be stewards, to be custodians of the gospel, to develop the truth of the gospel, to receive from God revelation concerning the development of the gospel, if we affirm that, then the logical conclusion is this, that the gospel is, at the end of the day, objectively verifiable. We don't have to scratch our heads and wonder, is this, you hear people talk today, this is a gospel issue, this is not a gospel issue. Listen, we know what our gospel issues right from the apostolic tradition. 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He rose again according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. He died for sinners. He's coming back. That's the gospel. The gospel is objectively verifiable, which means that because the contents of the gospel are recorded in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, they stand as a fixed body of truth, and as a fixed body of truth, they represent what Jude speaks of in Jude 3 as the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. It's done. It's a fixed body of truth. As such, there is no genuine profession of salvation in which there is no reference to the gospel as defined and spelled out in Scripture. That is why in writing to Christians at Rome, Paul can thank God for the fact that the Roman Christians had become, here are his words, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed. There is a standard. In writing to the Thessalonian believers, he could therefore exhort them to, quote, stand firm and hold to the traditions to which you, you were taught by us, by us, the apostles, either by our spoken word or by our letter in the book. The traditions. We have today a sentiment, a prevailing sentiment, especially in the newer, more contemporary generation. They are anti-traditionalists. They are what they call progressive theologians. We cannot be true Christians. We cannot be truly saved apart from the apostolic tradition, the teachings as recorded in Scripture, representing the teachings of the apostles as handed down by the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is objectively verifiable. We can go to the book and we can know what is the gospel. Paul is right, the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, he's talking about the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Question, how do you know that there's a hope laid up for heaven? Here's Paul, as you heard in the word of the truth, the gospel. Ultimately, that the gospel is apostolic means that it is scripture and not human ideas, feelings, hunches, or any kind of subjective experience is the criterion, the standard, the ultimate yardstick for defining and delineating and declaring the gospel. Indeed, the church is built, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Which means, as one man puts it, anyone claiming to preach the gospel, whoever he may be, must conform his word to the authentic message of the apostles. In closing, today we find, I said in closing before, this is the last time. Paul will say, finally, brethren, and then he goes on. I'm not claiming to apostolic authority. But finally, brethren, we find today, and it's very disturbing, many a professing pastor, theologian, operating as lone rangers, formulating their own ideas, their own ideologies, all in the name of creativity and freshness as regards the formulation of the gospel. They say, we're not into tradition, we are progressive in our theology, and uh, you know, they, 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 they really do not see the need to subject their teaching to the historic Christian faith as recorded in Scripture. And I would say this, my friend there can be no new gospel truth, there can be no new gospel categories. We have a lot of gospel categories today that people have come up with. But there can be no new gospel truth, no new gospel categories besides the normative truth of the apostolic gospel that has been delivered once for all to the saints. It means that every teaching, everything, every teaching that purports to be the gospel, as we said earlier, must come under the scrutiny of this gospel. I asked the question this morning. Do you know the saving truth of this gospel? Are you saved? 
Do you know Christ as Savior? Because at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. It's not about head knowledge. It's not about garnering a body of truth. It is a saving relationship with Christ. How do I come into that saving relationship? As we've been saying and as we've been seeing from this epistle, it is faith in Christ. The fact that Christ died for sins. I place my faith and trust in him, looking away from all else, to him and him alone to save me. Let's close this afternoon with hymn number 16. Very fitting note on which to end. How firm a foundation. It's in the supplemental.